Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Our text this morning will be verses 8 through 12. I'll ask you once again to stand with me as you're finding your place there. We'll read these five verses and then pray for the Lord to bless our time in the Word. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we confess to you our inability to to handle it rightly, to understand it, to believe it, to obey it. And so we voice to you once again the prayer that we've just sung, that you would awaken our minds, that you would, that you would illumine us, that you would, that you would change our lives with your words of life. We pray that you would do that now. And we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I've had some allergy issues of late, and I must have sneezed 50-ish times over the last couple of days. Many of those times in the presence of other people, and frequently I would hear in response, what? Bless you, bless you. Maybe out of 50 sneezes, I heard bless you 30 times. Bless you. I ate at Chick-fil-A this week, or went through the drive-thru, and as I left, a kind young person said, have a blessed day. You don't hear that at Burger King, but you do get it at Chick-fil-A for some reason. Have a blessed day. I'm so blessed, you'll hear people say occasionally, even outside the church. We use that word, bless, in a number of different ways. In casual conversation, perhaps without really even thinking about what we mean by it. And it's possible that even in the church, we we use it in various ways without thinking about what we mean by it. This morning, we're going to think of that word, bless, in three different ways. Three different ways in which blessing touches the life of an elect exile. We've been using that phrase, elect exile, so much over the last couple of months or so that to pick up some steam this morning, I'd like to revisit what we mean by that by looking again at some of these foundational concepts that undergird this letter of 1 Peter. 
Peter has addressed this letter to elect exiles of the dispersion in 1.1. If we turn over to 2.11, he addresses the recipients again as sojourners and exiles. So we see words like sojourner, exile, elect, dispersion. And all of these words are Old Testament words applied to God's people, which Peter is using to apply to the New Testament church. Now, the, the original elect sojourner, and, and by that we just mean a chosen resident alien, the original elect sojourner was Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. And Pastor Jason has already read to us from that chapter. Out of all the people on the earth, God chose Abram to be a father of a nation unto himself. In the opening verses of chapter 12, God spoke to Abram and said, Go from your country and your kindred, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And then he uses this word bless several times. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Leave the place where you belong, go to the place where I'm going to show you, and I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. And the story of the Old Testament, of course, is the story of God's people seeking a homeland, attaining that homeland, and then failing to retain that homeland because of their unfaithfulness to God. So they, they start out as sojourners living in a land that's not their own. God gives them a land, but then because they rebelled against God, he makes them exiles in a foreign land. They're removed from their own home. Now, Jeremiah, if we go over to the promise prophets. Jeremiah wrote a letter to the exiles of the southern kingdom in Jeremiah 29, where he instructed them to seek the welfare of the land of their exile. He says to them, look, you're to be faithful to the Lord in your land of exile. And if you do that, then you'll be brought back to the promised land where you'll be given a future and a hope. So, so, so the people of God, they're cast abroad as exiles and they're called the dispersion. So now Peter grabs all of these Old Testament terms and applies them to the New Testament church. We are the elect in that we have been chosen for life in Christ from before the foundation of the, the world. We are sojourners and exiles in that we live in a world that's not our own. We're, we're not citizens of this world. Ultimately, we are citizens of heaven. We live temporarily on this earth. We have an eternal inheritance waiting for us, as Peter's mentioned numerous times. We're awaiting our homeland, and, and we're awaiting it, not kind of, sort of like Abraham, but alongside Abraham. If you're taking notes, you might write down Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we, we find a parade of Old Testament believers in Jesus Christ, and we see that the New Testament church comprised of, of, of believing Jews and Gentiles they are the ultimate heirs of Abraham. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 11:13 through 16. Speaking of these Old Testament believers, he writes, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For, Peter who, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what we find is that in this this Old Testament narrative, the believers in Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, they were not ultimately looking for a promised land on earth, but Abraham, all of the Old Testament believers, like us, are awaiting a heavenly homeland. And in the meantime, we are the dispersion in that we are scattered like gospel seed throughout the world to spread the good news. And so we are people of a calling. And our calling, all of us, our calling is the same no matter what our vocation, our age, our sex, or our gifting. And that calling is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God acceptable through Jesus Christ. Among those sacrifices is this wonderful task of proclaiming the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. So now here in this middle section of 1 Peter that extends from 2.11 to 4.11, Peter is, is teaching us how to do that, how to commend the gospel to the world through our lives. Now most of us who have been in the church for any, any length of time at all, we have heard over and over that we spread the gospel with our words. And certainly that's true. We can't spread the gospel without speaking the word of Christ. Peter is teaching us that an equally significant part of our mission is to live lives that are consistent with the gospel so that people see that it's true. We want them to hear the gospel and then we want them to see that it's true by the way that we live our lives. And in the passage that we've just read, 1 Peter 3, 8-12, we can hear more Echoes from the Old Testament in the form of the language of blessing. The elect exile blesses others and is blessed of God. So this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abram, I will bless you. You will be a blessing to others. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. We find in this text that by the way we live our lives, we demonstrate the truth of the gospel to others. And so we bless the world. And further, the Lord fulfills his promise to us by bringing us into his heavenly kingdom. All right? Now, there are two ways in which the elect exile blesses others. And the first of those is the first point in your notes. The elect exile blesses his fellow believers. He blesses his fellow believers. Look with me again, beginning at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's important to read this verse in its context. If we, if we remove this verse from its context, it's, e- it's easy to understand it as simply a, a bare moral imperative. It's just a, something that we're supposed to do as believers. Certainly it is something that we're supposed to do as believers. But the point of this section is to demonstrate the truth of the gospel to the world. So... We are to do these things in verse 8 within the church so that people outside the church can know that what we say about the gospel is true. Now, what do we say is true about the gospel? Let's think first of all about the nature of the gospel itself. We've, We've already celebrated the gospel this morning by the things that we have sung and read and prayed. We have gathered here this morning as a body of former rebels against God. Isn't that wonderful? Former rebels 
but now children. Former enemies, but now brothers and sisters of Christ himself. This is amazing when you, when you stop and think about it. We, we were all born delighting to turn against God, to sin against him with our every breath. We earned his eternal judgment many times over. And even an awareness of that judgment wasn't enough to make us hate sin or, or to turn away from it. Because in our, in our fallenness, we had these hearts that were wired to love sin and hate God. Do you, do you remember what that was like? The, 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 the horror of that? Think back now. Now that you love God, think about what a horrible thing it would be to once again hate God, to be trapped in that. What, what, what a death sentence that was. But God rescued us. He rescued our hearts from slavery to that fallenness. He rescued our hearts from slavery to hating him. He broke sin's power over us. And how did he do that? He, he did it in the most meaningful and personal way that he could have. He sent his own son, Jesus. Jesus took on our flesh. God himself took on our flesh, came to our dirty earth that was sullied by our, our sin, lived here perfectly under God's law and earned this flawless record of righteousness like none of us have ever done. Like none of us ever would have, would have wanted to if we could have. So he, he, he lives an entire life this way. And then, as the only person who never deserved it, he then laid down his life for sin, crucified for us in our place on the cross, taking his own loving father's wrath for our sin so that we could be forgiven for sins that he never committed. He died. God died. And then three days later, his father raised him from the dead, proving to all creation that this mighty King Jesus had defeated sin and death and earned the right to give life and forgiveness to whomever he chooses. So that today, anyone who repents and trusts in Christ, they are freed from sin and adopted by God. Now, this gospel that we proclaim teaches that our sin problem moved us not only to hate God, but it also moved us to hate one another. And we see this all the time in the world, right? Man hates man. So when, when Jesus freed us from sin and gave us life, he so powerfully saved us that he reconciled us to God and reconciled us to man. He, he gave us hearts capable of loving God and hearts capable of loving each other. Which is why Jesus says in John 13, By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So what we find in verse 8 that we've just read is an absolutely non-negotiable, essential component of our commending the gospel to the world. 
by blessing one another in the church, loving each other, we bless the world. We bless the world by demonstrating the truth. The gospel really does what we claim it does. Look at the church. Look at how we love each other. God has done this. We didn't do it. God transformed our hearts so that people who used to hate each other, now we love each other. The gospel frees people from sin in such a way that they are no longer dastardly, evil people to each other, but they love each other. When we say that we, that we are to bless one another, as verse 8 calls us to, when we say that, we simply mean that we are to live in such a way that we are a spiritual benefit to each other. We are to be a spiritual benefit to one another. We are to help and not hinder each other along this narrow way. And we'll not spend a lot of time on verse 8, but I would like to give us all an opportunity to consider how we're doing in these things. These five things that Peter brings to us in verse 8. First of all, he says, have unity of mind. Be of one mind. Put your own agenda aside and take up in common the Lord's agenda. I pray a number of things every day. And then there are other things that I pray on specific days of the week just to spread things out because there's so much to pray for. But one thing that I pray for every day is that the Lord would preserve the unity of the body at Christ, of, of Christ at PBF and that he would preserve this unity by keeping our eyes, all of us, on the main thing rather than our being distracted either by pet peeves or good but non-essential things. Now, there, there are likely some of us, maybe even most of us, possibly all of us, who could say that there are aspects of ministry at Providence that are not being done the way that we would prefer. Would it surprise you to learn that there are no elders at Providence who could say everything at Providence is being done exactly the way that I would like? Would that surprise you? I'm tempted to put Pastor John on the, on the, on the, on the spot. I'm not going to do it. I'm not gonna, I haven't asked all these brothers. I'll testify myself. Everything at Providence is not being done the way that, that I would say, that I would think. Now, I've, I've talked enough to Pastor John in the past, and I've, and I've seen him put his preferences aside enough that I think I could testify to, to what I'm about to say, okay? The elders put their preferences aside for the sake of main things. Am, am I safe in saying that? Yes, okay. Right. I, I, I've seen Pastor Rick do this in the past. I've seen Pastor Ken do this, Pastor Jason. I, I've seen these guys do, that, do, it, do it enough that I feel confident saying it's a regular thing. Now, wh why would we do that? For the sake of the unity of the body. So I would just ask you, are you majoring on essentials? In, in, even, even in the privacy of your own mind. Even in the privacy of your own mind. Even if you're not contending for it out loud with, with other people, in the privacy of your own mind, are you majoring on, this, on the essentials for the sake of having unity of mind? Have sympathy, says. Some of us are tempted right now to, to think about those who have not been sympathetic toward us. I would invite you to kill that idea right now. The question is, have you been sympathetic toward others? Have you been sympathetic toward others? Have you entered into the pain, the trouble of others? How have you done that in this body? How have you done that in this body? Or, or have your own troubles been so large in your own mind that you've been very little help to anyone else? 
Because remember, this, this idea of being a blessing is helping others along this narrow way. Have brotherly love, he says. This, is, this, is one, this one is right in the middle of the five. And it's right in the middle because it's the main idea. Are we growing in affection for one another and loving acts? Because brotherly love includes both of those things. A feeling of affection and doing things. Both of them are explicitly commanded in the New Testament. Jesus taught in Matthew 5 that if you only do those things for those that you tend to enjoy, you're no different than evil people. So how how are we doing that with the entire body of Christ at Providence Bible Fellowship? Affection and loving acts. You know, it's our Ephesians 4.2 muscles that identify us as disciples. That is, with, with, with all humility and patience, with gentleness, bearing with one another in love. When people do things that annoy us, do we feel affection for them and love them? Do loving acts for them. Have a tender heart, he says. This, this one is parallel to sympathy. They're, they're difficult to tell apart. Having a tender heart is synonymous with being compassionate. My wife recently shared with me that I could stand to grow in compassion. My response to her confirmed her assessment. (laughs) I I need that woman. I need her desperately. And God was was kind, so kind in her sharing that with me. And then moving my heart to repent and ask for her forgiveness. And then by taking me to the scriptures. And since then it showed me wonderful things in the gospels in particular. Of Christ's example of great compassion. For people of all kinds of stripes. People whose troubles resulted from their own sin. And resulted from the sins of others. Christ is just equal opportunity compassion giver. Those who are hard-hearted are nothing like Jesus. How are we doing when it comes to being tender-hearted? Have a a humble mind, Peter writes. Think little of yourself and think of yourself little. Those are two different things that both feed into this idea of humility. And Those two things mean don't have a high opinion of yourself and think about others. Okay? Meditation on the gospel in personal terms is helpful for cultivating humility. Meditating on God's holiness and our sinfulness and the Father's love and Christ's condescension and atonement, the resurrection, His ascension and His praying for us. All of that will cultivate humility in us. Pride will destroy the ministry of a church and the witness of a church And so he says, have a humble mind. Have a humble mind. When we do these things in the church, we're a blessing to the church. We we exist as a benefit to the body of Christ, and we commend the gospel to the world. So the elect exile blesses his fellow believers. Second, the elect exile blesses those who persecute him. He blesses those who persecute him. Look at the first half of verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. We've already seen this in the Lord's example back in chapter 2. When reviled, he didn't revile in return. And Peter explicitly in 2.21 says, look, walk in Jesus' footsteps. 
don't return evil for evil. When, when, when wronged, don't wrong in return. Don't revile in return. So we could see here in verses 8 and 9, in verse 8, Peter's reaching back to, to chapter 1, and he's, he's, in a sense, summarizing some of the teaching about how we interact with believers. In verse 9, he's summarizing some of the teaching about how to respond to unbelievers. Here, Peter goes a little bit further than he did in chapter 2. Because here he says, but on the contrary, bless. Don't merely withhold reviling when you're reviled. And don't merely not do evil when people do evil to you. But he says, bless. The, the elect exile blesses those who persecute him. What exactly does he mean by bless here? Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 4.12. 1 Corinthians 4.12. He writes there, when reviled, we bless and if we, if we consult the rest of the New Testament, look all over the place, we find that it's possible both Peter and Paul are drawing from the Lord Jesus' teaching in places like Matthew 5 and Luke 6. In Luke 6, 28, Jesus said, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So we might gather from the Lord's words there that to bless in the sense that Peter is using it here is to ask God to bestow favor on that person. To bless someone who reviles you is to ask God to bestow favor on that person. Now, the, the parallel passage in Matthew 5 seems to verify that. Listen to Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. The Lord Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, we, we hear that last part, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And we may think, wow, is Jesus giving us some kind of works righteousness here? Well, Jesus is not saying, do this, pray for those who persecute you so that you can be saved, so that you may be adopted by God. Sometimes we will say of, of, a, of a young boy, wow, he is his father's son. What do we mean by that? We mean he's just like his dad. That's the sense in Matthew 5. Pray for those who persecute you, bless those who hate you, and you will be just like your Father who is in heaven. Because that's just what God does. That's what the gospel story tells us, isn't it? God never saved anyone who loved him first. You know that? God has only ever saved his enemies. Hallelujah. Otherwise, we'd be doomed. He's only ever saved his enemies. And so, if we would be like our Father, then we must also love our enemies. Listen to this. By Praying that he would bestow upon them the same grace that he has bestowed upon us. This is how we can tell if we really love the gospel. If we really love the gospel, if we really love God, we will want him to be magnified by multiplied millions being saved by this grace. That disposition toward the lost we want them to be saved. And that disposition toward the lost, particularly toward those who've mistreated us, shows that the gospel has had its way in us. It's changed us from, from sinners into saints, from those who hated others into those who, who love others. It's the opposite of Jonah's disposition. If you think back to the story of Jonah, Jonah was someone who was very eager to receive the grace of God, 
but loathe to share it. When God saved him from the bottom of the sea, he praised God. But then he went and shared the message with the Assyrians and threw a mini temper tantrum when they repented. He, he did not demonstrate that he loved the grace of God. Peter would have us to love the grace of God by commending the gospel, by praying for those who have done us harm. Th think about those in your life who have done you the greatest harm. The people who have taken advantage of you, abused you. If you wish them ill, what, what kind of heart are you displaying? You're displaying a characteristic of an unregenerate heart. But let's, let's all be completely honest. We all can lean in that direction when we're not walking with the Lord, can't we? But when we make it our habit to meditate on the gospel and enjoy Jesus and wonder at the fact that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Not merely so that bygones could be bygones, but so that we could be his eternal bride. We, we should find this grace so beautiful, so awe-inspiring that we want to see it at work all around us, including in the lives of those who have wronged us. If we meditate on the gospel, love the gospel, we'll find Christ so magnificent that we want our enemies to love him and to know him. So, who is that person for you? Who can you pray for? Who, who has hurt you deeply, but who needs the Lord's grace so badly? What would prevent you from praying for that person? Do you love the gospel? Commend it by living it, by extending it through prayer to those precise people. The elect exile blesses his fellow believers. He also blesses those who persecute him. And finally, the elect exile is blessed by God. The elect exile is blessed by God. We're going to read the rest of the passage again all at once here, beginning at the second part of verse 9. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, it is somewhat like, Peter is preaching a mini-expository sermon here in this passage, and his sermon text is Psalm 34. The sermon is verses 8 and 9. His text is verses 10 and 12. So he takes text from Psalm 34 to ground what he has taught us in verses 8 and 9. All right? Now, why would we do these things in verses 8 and 9? Why would we bless the church and bless unbelievers? Because we have been called to bless on our road to receiving God's eternal blessing. That's the message of Peter's sermon here. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, that is not a reference to your best life now. That's, that's not Peter's way of saying, hey, you want to you live it up here? Live a moral life. That's not what Peter's sermon is. 
read the letter of 1 Peter. This life is a life of trouble. Where is Peter focusing our attention in this letter? He, he is saying, look, hold on in this life, clinging to the hope of the next. The good life, the, the good days and the life to which the, the elect exile looks forward is that of the salvation being brought at the return of Christ. Those who hope in Christ, they will live a certain way because the gospel has had its way in them. Those who believe that this temporal life is the place to live their best life now, they will find great trouble in this life. And they will find worse trouble in the next life. Why? Because, as Peter says in the very last phrase of this text, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So th through these verses is the idea that there is a life consistent with knowing God and there is a life that is consistent with not knowing God. The elect exile is one who knows him and who lives in a particular way. The unbeliever is, a, is one who does not know him and lives in a different way. He lives in a way by, the, the unbeliever lives by paying evil for evil and reviling for reviling. And when we, when we read a text like 1 Peter 3, 9 through 12, it's very easy to misunderstand it, to teach that our salvation is earned. So that we might paraphrase it to say, bless others and you will earn a blessing. Now we, we have to work hard to maintain biblical thinking about these things. In spite of what we might think, it is not easy to think biblically. It is not. We, when we don't work at it, we make errors that lead to big trouble. And one of the ways that we, we try, we try to, to, to just make it easy for ourselves as it pertains to this issue of works and salvation is to say perhaps something like works have absolutely no relationship to salvation. But that statement not only cannot account for all the teaching in the New Testament, like a passage that we're studying this morning, but a statement like that can also lead us to a conception of salvation that is not transformative. It can lead us to a conception of salvation that does not commend the gospel, which we claim transforms sinners into saints. Now, on the other hand, when we do recognize that the Bible teaches that works are connected to salvation, but then we're not careful to articulate exactly how we can end up undercutting the gospel of grace and reserving a place of boasting for ourselves and misunderstanding the gospel entirely. It takes hard work to think biblically. So let's do some of that hard work this morning together, okay? Let's think biblically together this morning, all right? We are not saved by our works. That's worth writing down. We are not saved by our works. According to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 9, our salvation is by grace through faith. Oh, that is good news. I'm going to read to you the last two verses of that passage. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not a result of works. Did everybody get that? Your salvation does not result from works. And here's an important point. 
it couldn't, it could never result from works because we were not capable of any good works outside of Christ. What does the first part of that passage teach? It teaches we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God had to raise our miserable, sinful corpses in Christ and give us life by grace through faith in Him. It's the only way it could have worked. Couldn't have, couldn't have come through works. We weren't capable. Now, does that then mean that works play no part in the life of a believer? Are works connected in no way to salvation? By no means, because the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10, reads this way. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We're not saved by good works, but we were saved unto good works. That also worth writing down. We were saved unto good works. So we were saved in Christ so that we would then live lives of godliness. This is the, the gospel that we proclaim. That's what it does. That's what we say it does. It transforms sinners into saints. People who hated God into people who love God. People who hated one another into people who love one another. They live differently after the gospel has its way in them. God created these works so that we would walk in them. Godly living then is the evidence of this by grace through faith salvation. Here's an important point. When we talk about this godliness that comes from salvation, we're not talking about sinless perfection. That also is worth writing down. This is not sinless perfection, but progressive growth in godliness over time. It's progressive growth in godliness over time. And that growth demonstrates that the gospel does what we say it does. So, what should we conclude if we or someone else does not live that kind of godliness, that kind of progressive growth in godliness over time? Again, not sinless perfection, but growth in godliness over time. If someone does not demonstrate that, then there's no reason to be confident that they are saved because what does our gospel do? It saves people unto good works, right? Now that's the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. Does, does Peter agree with him? Well, we've seen that he does because Peter holds the same theology in the letter of 1 Peter that Paul does in Ephesians and elsewhere. We've seen it in this letter. By God's mercy, we have been caused to be raised through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And by God's power, we are being kept through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Peter and Paul had the same teacher. His name is Jesus. They got their theology in the same place. And similar to Ephesians 2.10, Peter now calls us, live out this salvation by demonstrating the godliness that salvation produces. Live out your by grace through faith salvation. If First Peter 3 verses 10 through 12 uses Psalm 34 to ground the teaching of verses 8 and 9, which calls us to commend the gospel with our lives. For to this you were called, he says. To what were we called? We were called to bless others. We were called to bless others. All the way back in Genesis 12, we were called to bless others. 
We are heirs of Abraham according to promise, Paul teaches in Galatians 3. Abraham's call, which was to be a blessing, that's our call. Abraham's promise that God would bless him, that's our promise. Why is that? Well, Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 3 that, that we are heirs of Abraham because we have put on Christ. Let me, let, me, let me read to you Galatians 3 verse 27 and following. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And here's what he concludes in that passage. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So, Abraham's promise, Abraham's calling, ours because we are in Christ. By faith in Christ, we both take on this call to blessing the world and this promise of blessing in God and the Christian life begins with repentance and faith. It then issues forth in a life of godliness, which looks like what Peter depicts here in these verses. It eventually results in what Peter uses Psalm 34 language to refer to, which is loving life and seeing good days. So those who want to, to, to see that life, that eternal blessing of God, what do they do? They live the life that issues forth from a by grace through faith salvation. So these, these verses, verses 10 through 12, they, they prescribe more than just a good moral life. This is nothing other than the lifestyle of repentance and faith. When we turn from evil and pursue what is good, as Peter calls us to do here, we display our hope and trust in the Lord. How, how does that work? Let's, let's think through this. How, how doing the things that Peter calls us to do here displays hope and trust in the Lord. Well, he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking, from speaking deceit. Again, Peter's quoting Psalm 34. Those who hope in God don't hope in their own faculty of speech to make their life easier or to bring justice. They trust God to do those things. And so when they're reviled, when people do evil against them, they don't take it upon themselves to make things right. Now, why would Peter be writing this in an evangelistic text? And that's what this is. This whole section is an evangelistic text. Why is he writing that here? Because think about, uh, again, think about this gospel and think about this God that we proclaim. We proclaim a God who created the world, who judges justly every sin committed, and who loves so deeply that he gave his son to save sinners. And we claim about this God. He can be trusted. And this God is true. His gospel is real. Now think about what happens if, when we are wronged, we respond in the opposite way that Peter prescribes here. What happens? If when someone wrongs me, I come unglued defending myself. I take vengeance for myself. I contend for myself. What is the final message that they receive about this God? God can't be all that powerful. He can't be all that just, can't be all that loving, can't be all that true, because I couldn't trust him with an injury to my feelings. I have just denied the gospel 
with my life. Th- those who hope in God, they, they turn away from evil. They seek peace. It's important to note that in verse 11, verse 11 is parallel with, verse, with the first part of verse 9. When, when, he says, when he says, turn away from evil, he's not talking about turning away from evil in general. He, he means from doing evil to those who've done evil to you. And when he says, do good, he's not saying do good in general, but do good to those who have done evil to you. When he says, seek peace, he's not talking about seeking a peaceful, easy feeling, but chase reconciliation. As a gospel commending life. Those who hope in God. They turn away from vengeance. They actively do good to those who have done them ill. They pursue peace with others. Why? Because they love God. They love the gospel. And they want others to see what he is like. They want them to see what God has done in them. They hope in God. And they believe what the Bible says in verse 12. God's eye is on the righteous. His ear is toward their prayer. They find comfort in that. Live like you believe this is what Peter's point is. Live like those who hope in God. His face is against those who do evil. It's against them because their deeds demonstrate that they don't belong to him. The hope of eternal life comes to those who live the way that only true believers can. We should live like those who are heading toward this eternal blessing of God. Originally promised in Genesis 3. Reiterated to Abraham in Genesis 12. Coming again to us in Jesus Christ. Now the way that we serve the church. And the way that we show God's grace to the lost. Displays that we are believers. And more importantly. That the gospel is true. And this is the calling of the elect exile. The the person who lives this way, they can be confident that they will enjoy God eternally. Not because they've earned it, but because their lives display evidence of a by grace through faith salvation. Some of us, as we've we've worked our way through particularly verses 8 and 9, we may have recognized that there are things of which we need to repent. Some relationships in the church that we have that have not mirrored what we're called to in verse 8. Some relationships outside the church where we have not treated those who mistreat us as Christ would. We must repent of those things this morning and return to the gospel and think of the favor that has been shown to us in Christ. Pray and ask the Lord, help us to commend this glorious gospel By blessing others. Mindful of the blessing that awaits us. Leave your homeland and go to the land that I'll show you. I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we've left all to follow Jesus. We followed him to live this life of an elect exile. His blessing awaits us. We exist to bless others. We don't exist to make money. We don't exist to make names for ourselves. We exist to spread the name of Jesus Christ. And so you shall be a blessing. That's who we are. And what a gift that we have this great calling of spreading the name of Christ with our voices and with our lives. Peter calls us in this text, embrace this word. Embrace this. Embrace this life. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how he has rescued us. How you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you, Lord, that, that by faith you have you've granted us to put on Christ and become heirs of Abraham, that we might be a blessing and be blessed by you. Lord, help us to wear that calling as a glorious blessing and help us to see that as our vocation in this life. We have tended to be distracted by non-essential things, Lord. Please bring us back to the main thing, which is living for Jesus. Help us to think in these terms, Lord. How are we being a blessing in the church? How are we blessing those outside the church? All while maintaining an eye toward the blessing that awaits us in Jesus when He returns. Lord, help us to think on these things and live in accordance with them. We ask in His name. Amen. Stand with us, please.